Well, good morning to you. It's always a joy to worship with you. I hope you're doing well. If you brought your Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 2, if you don't have one with you, there should be one in a seat near you. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home with you as a gift. Um, we're in John 2 uh, as a, a walk through this incredible book uh, this year and the first part of next year. Uh, it's called Fully, Fully Alive. Um, and uh, in fact, there's an entire link on our website with lots of resources, pray.org backslash fully alive. And uh, it'll, uh, there's lots of stuff on there that can help you. Um, one of the things we do every month is uh, at least... I say every month, as this is a long-standing tradition. For, for two straight months, we have uh, uh, selected a passage from John to memorize as a church family. And for March, that passage is John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So let's say that as a family this morning, okay? Why don't you join me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so as we lodge this deep within our heart, what our hope is, is, is that it'll serve as an anchor so that when you sin and you mess up, that you can remember that there's something that can, that, can, that can stir your heart once again to remember that your God, the God, the creator of the universe loves you. He loves you so much that he gave. He gave his son for us that we could have eternal life. And he talks about how that he didn't do that in order to condemn us, but he did it to save us. And so when you think about the crazy world in which we live and you think about the whole political process and you think about all the sin and you think about all the crime, you can remember this is that God Almighty created a way for us to receive redemption and reconciliation. And one day he's going to make this whole mess right and be through his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, uh, it's a joy to, to do that as a family of faith. So let's, let's pray together, right? Father in heaven, we uh, come to your word. As we open it up, we recognize, Lord, that you, by your spirit, inspired John to record and to write these things that he saw with his own eyes. God, we want to praise you that you preserved these words for us through the generations We thank you, Lord, that we have these words that have been preserved, that have been placed within the Bible, and that somebody sacrificed in order even to give their life, multiple people to give their life so that this Bible could be translated into English. We thank you, God, that we have a copy in our own hand. And so we pray that as we read it, Lord, that there would be gratitude that would fill our heart. But God, we also look to you, and this book tells us, your book tells us that we can't even understand this without the Spirit of God. And so we pray that you would do that miracle of mercy, that you would open up our eyes to help us to see Jesus Christ as great, that you would help us to believe what we read, to apply it to our life, help us to understand this. So would you give us courage, we pray. We thank you for it. Thank you, God, also that you teach us things through all kinds of ways. And uh, I pray, God, that you would use this way right now, Father, to confirm exactly, exactly who your son is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So several years ago, our family was out in uh, the beautiful state of Washington, and uh, we went to Mount Rainier. It's just an incredibly beautiful, beautiful um, mountain. We were hiking around out there. In fact, there's a little shot that I want to show you right here. Just a beautiful place. And this is in the summer, and yet there's snow, and we kind of got to hike up and around it. But while we were um, here, 
uh, someone in our family, they looked up and they said, hey, look at that. And they spotted what looked like a face in the mountain. Now, if you can look right dead center of that mountain, you can see what looks like a profile of a man with glasses looking to his right. Now, if you can't see it there, maybe this will help, okay? There it is, okay? There he is, okay? Now, if you still can't see that, then this whole illustration is going to fall on its head, okay? But what was interesting is that everywhere we went, as we continued to hike all over this mountain, what we found is everywhere we looked, we, we kept find, we, like, like we kept find him. And, and so we have, we have, I don't know, I bet we have 40 pictures. And it's interesting, you cannot, you cannot look at the picture and not see him there. In fact, we had lots of them where there's a whole family, we're all gathered there, we're all like, woohoo, and all of a sudden, there he is right behind us. And he's there in every one of the pictures. Once we saw it, we couldn't unsee it. And what's interesting is no matter the picture now, um, we always see the face. And this is John's goal. Okay, John is not leading us on a hike around these passages to help us find great selfie locations. He has a very specific intent, and that intent is to help us to see the glory of the face of Jesus Christ Because when we see the greatness of Jesus Christ, we can't unsee it. The point of this text, and hopefully even the the success of this sermon, is that if you were to go back tonight and read this text, or next week, or next month, or a year from now, is that you would be able to see the face of Jesus Christ. You'd be able to see the glory that's lodged into the mountain of John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is his intent. Is it no matter where you're at, you can see Jesus Christ. And you see, this is his intent in the whole book. In fact, he starts in John chapter 1, verse 14, and there he says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's interesting is this is precisely also how the book ends. John's going to say, look, I've sought to give you portrait after portrait after portrait to help you see the glory of Jesus Christ. And he says, and why I've selected these passages so that you can see his glory is so that you will be able to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And in believing, you'll have life in his name. And what's interesting is as you go through story after story, John is going to specifically include most of the time These specific words, in fact, at the end of the story, we're going to see that Jesus manifested his glory. It says he showed his glory, that people saw it, and those people believed. This is the point of every one of these portraits. And so my my plea to you is this, is do not get distracted by the surroundings in our text. Be on a lookout for the glory of Jesus that can literally cause grace and truth to stream into your life. So this is what he says. On the third day, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites 
of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his own disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So what does Jesus want to show? He wants to show his glory. And I want to show you three ways how. First, if you want to take notes, is that Jesus shows his glory by wanting to be present in our lives. This is a miracle. I hope that you can see this and will see this. That Jesus shows his glory by wanting to be present in our life. Now, weddings were the most significant, carefully planned events in first century family life. Perhaps similar even to today. And in tiny villages like Cana and You need to know this. At this point in time, Cana was not even a town. It was a village. It was made up of very, very humble people, lots of farmers and shepherds. And um, it's a small, small town. And in a tiny village such as Cana, weddings were literally community-wide events. Everyone was there. And we're also told, pretty interestingly, that Mary was there. Now, Mary's not from Cana. This is important, you see, because because if you lived in Cana, you were invited. Because there are so few people. Everyone knew everyone in Cana. Mary and Jesus, they're not from Cana. They're from Nazareth. So we're not exactly sure why, but all of a sudden it says that Mary was there. And also says that Jesus was invited. And his disciples came with Jesus, making those disciples the first century wedding crashers. Right? And so if you think about the... like. I mean, it has to be amazing because everyone at the wedding knows everyone at the wedding. And then all of a sudden, there's these five guys. There's not 12 yet. There's only five disciples. We're going to pick up a few more along the way. And Peter was one of them. And Peter loves to talk. And, and so I can just see Peter. You know, he's walking around. He's eating something, you know, some lamb or, you know, something. And he's just enjoying his time. And all of a sudden, someone walks up and goes, you know, I don't know that guy. Hey, um, you're new around here. What's your name? Well, I've been going by Peter for about a week now, you know, because Jesus changed his name a week ago. And all right, well, he doesn't really know his name. But that's all right. And he goes, well, how do you know the bride and groom? Well, I don't. I just came with Jesus. It's not a small thing, though, that the text says that Jesus was invited. And I want to show you, hopefully, why, Right? I think what it means is the family liked Jesus enough to invite him to their special day. And the fact that he came meant that Jesus loved people enough to come. Now, there's a lot of people who who come up with ideas about why Jesus would come to this wedding. Some people believe that what he was doing is just with his physical presence, he was giving credence and authority to the sanctity of marriage. 
You know, if I just go to one, then okay, okay, now it's now it's significant. I don't think that's the point because I think he's going to make that point in Matthew 19 when he lays down, all right, this is what marriage is. This is what God did. This is what it's for with his own mouth. And then in Ephesians chapter five, when he inspires the apostle Paul to literally write, this is what marriage is all about, that it's a portrait of Christ in the church, that husbands are supposed to love their wives in such a way that when people observe how they treat their wife, they see a accurate, not a perfect, but at least an accurate picture of how Christ loves us, his people. So there's a sacrifice and there's generosity and there's patience and there's kindness, just as Christ has dealt with us. That's husbands, how we're supposed to be the groom to our wife. But there, we're also told that the wife is supposed to love her husband and to give the world a portrait of how the church loves and yields to Christ. How we, how, how, how we as the people of God, that, that, that we love Jesus, that we honor Jesus, that we want to follow Jesus, and we want to be near Jesus. See, I don't believe personally, I mean, he did go, and so perhaps that's why he went. But I think there's at least another reason that's even more important, and that's simply this, is that Jesus wanted to be there. He didn't have to be there. He just started his public ministry. He could have said, you know, I got speaking engagements kind of all over the place, so maybe I won't come. No, he wanted to be there. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means set up a tent. He put his tent in our backyard. You see, Jesus didn't come to this earth and build a 20-foot privacy fence around his house so that he could admire himself in a mirror without being distracted. There's a lot of kings that do just that. But Jesus is not that kind of king. And if you can just imagine, think about the miracle that Jesus went to a wedding. You see, you have to remember who this person is in order to see this as an attribute of glory. Jesus is the son of God. In John chapter 1, we've already been told that there's 10 attributes of Jesus in the first chapter that all show up at a guy and a girl's wedding. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the king of Israel. He's the lamb of God. He's the Messiah. They call him rabbi, the teacher. He's the source of life. He's the creator of the universe. He's the final authoritative word of God. This is who came to their wedding. In addition, he's the architect of marriage. And the reality of what all marriage is supposed to point to. Think about if you're this bride and groom, like later on in your life, maybe you come to faith in Christ or maybe you go up to heaven and, you know, and, and all of a sudden now you see everything. You're like, oh, the architect of it all came to our wedding. He heard our vows. He sat next to me. He came to a wedding. And I believe he did so. Because he wanted to dwell among us. He set up his tent in our yard. He walked on our streets. He attended our weddings so that we could see his glory. And so that we could receive grace and truth. So in response to this truth that he wants to be involved in our life, the application is simply this, is let's make room in our day for Jesus. Let's make room in our day for Jesus. Jesus wants to be near you. He wants to inform your decisions. This is really an incredible gift because he knows what tomorrow holds. 
He, he cares about our lives. Nothing in our life is too insignificant for his care and concern. And so we can literally invite Jesus into our day multiple times throughout the day. And I encourage you to do this. You get to work. Maybe you're on your way to your work and you say, God, I'm about to go to work. Would you please just, I welcome you into my day. Would you help me to guard my tongue? Would you help me to put forth an effort that's worthy of your glory? Would you help me to, to, to speak with integrity while I'm there? You're about to go into a meeting. Perhaps it's an easy meeting. Perhaps you know it's going to be a hard meeting. You can pause right before you're going or while you're walking there. Say, Jesus, I just invite you into this part of my day. I need you to be here. You're driving home and you know you have a spouse, husband or wife, or where your kid's at home. And all of a sudden, you're all right, I got four hours of like needed energy right now. We got bedtime. We got meals. We got homework. We got this and this and this and this. God, I'm welcoming you. I'm inviting you. Would, would you. would you come with me in this? And Jesus wants to be there. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, this is glorious when you think that the creator, creator, the authoritative Lord over heaven and earth wants to help you make your decisions, wants to come and be with you. This is available and it's glorious. The second thing is this, is that Jesus shows his glory by setting his face to please his father. He shows his glory by setting his face to please his father. Now, have you ever been to a wedding where the groom embarrassed himself or where you were embarrassed for the groom? I have. Uh, I've, I've, I've uh, had the privilege to actually attend a bunch of weddings and had a great seat um, in the was a singles pastor here for a long time. And so I did a lot of these weddings, right? And so there were things that I would see. And that's, it's, it's understandable. There's a lot of anxiety, families coming in. There's a lot of details, a lot of concerns. And, and sometimes you're just sort of observing these things. And it's like, ooh, man, I wish, wish you wouldn't have said that or done that or forgotten that or this or this or this. And it's not just the groom. But in this case, there's a groom that makes a tragic, embarrassing mistake. You see, if there's anything that this groom was supposed to have spent the previous year doing, it's showing that he can provide. They had a year period that we would call engagement. It was a little bit more than engagement. But in their culture, they had a year period where his goal as groom was, I need to show that I can provide. And now here at their wedding, before the entire village, the drink that is most commonly associated with provision and abundance and plenty and celebration and joy runs out, and it's his fault. This is why he's the only person rebuked in our text. The, 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 the master of the feast, what this is talking about is the lead waiter. He's, he comes up and he goes, dude, you got this all wrong. In other words, this was, a, this was a social disaster, especially for him. This was supposed to be sort of his generosity put on display, not only for father-in-law, but for everyone in his town. To say, I'm ready to lead a home. And they run out of wine. I mean, dude, you had one job, you know? <laughs> And Mary's there, and Mary sees this, and Mary goes, wow, this is the problem. But right next to Mary, or at least near Mary, there's the most resourceful, compassionate person on the face of the earth who has never had a bad idea. And so she walks up, 
Jesus. They've run out of wine. And his response is stunning. There's three pieces. I'm going to read it all, and we're going to talk about all three. He says, woman. He doesn't say mom. Oh, blessed one. No, he says, woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let's unpack these three, okay? First of all, woman. All the women want to know what this one is, right? (laughs) Um, It is very true that this is not a particularly affectionate way for Jesus to speak to Mary. But it was also not a culturally disrespectful way. And that's important for you to understand. In this culture, this word woman would be similar here in the South to ma'am. In fact, every time Jesus addresses a woman in the Gospel of John, he calls her woman. Mary Magdalene in John 20 at the tomb. His mother, again, Mary, on the cross when he says, John, Mary, meet, he's going to take care of you. The woman who's caught in sin in John 8 and the woman at the well. And so it's not a particularly affectionate way to talk, but it's also not a culturally disrespectful way to talk. Let me just say, for those who are kids in the room, it is a disrespectful way to talk today. So I would not encourage you to go home and say, hey, woman, give me a drink. That, that, you might get more than a drink, okay? And so, and so you know, but in this case, I, I, uh, he's, he's still honoring her. But I think he's choosing his language very importantly, and you're going to see why here in just a second. The second thing he says is, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Now, this same phrase, these same four Greek words, they're literally used in Matthew 8. They're used in Luke 4 and in Mark chapter 1. And in every time this phrase is used, other than this right here in the Gospels, it's used by a demon speaking to Jesus when Jesus is invading the demon's territory. So Jesus walks in. They have authority. Now Jesus has authority. And all of a sudden that demon says, what you doing here? What do you want with me? The same phrase that Jesus uses to his mother. The point here is simply this, is that Jesus is saying right here, Mary, look, this is not your place to call out my power. Now he could have said, mom, sure, I'll take care of it. I got this. That's what he did, but that's not what he said. So why did he say this? Well, I believe it's for this reason. You see, in spite of Mary's complete knowledge of Jesus' absolute uniqueness and his mission, and we, and we know that she knows, okay? There's a lot, of, a lot of hints, okay? First of all, there's angels, okay, involved in the whole story. An angel comes to her and says, look, I get the fact that you're a virgin, You're going to have a baby. And so there's already a sense of uniqueness that she's aware of this child. Among other things, he's, he's, um, I mean, he's the son of God and she knows that. An angel comes to Joseph, her husband, and says, this is what you're going to name him, Jesus. And his mission on earth is he's going to save people from their sin. And so Mary is aware that Jesus is absolutely unique and absolutely on mission. And yet, for 30 years, Jesus has submitted to her, ironically, as his God-given authority of a parent. So growing up, he had his face set on Mary. And so when Mary said, Jesus, it's time to go to bed. 
We don't have stories that say, well, let me check with my heavenly father to see if that's true. No. In fact, in Luke 2, it actually says that he submitted to Mary and Joseph. But now what's happening here is there's a, a page has been turned. His public ministry has begun. And now he has set his face on his father's will. And that's going to change the relationship that he has with his earthly mother. 18 years before this, when Jesus was 12, Jesus went missing. Mary and Joseph start this frantic search. and They find him at the temple and Mary comes and he says, son, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he says to them, I just love a 12-year-old, right? Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, Joseph is standing right there and he's like, well, I know he's not talking about my house, you know. There's an awareness in this relationship that was very, very distinct from the beginning. That one day that page would turn. And then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, every time he uses this, he's talking specifically the hour of his death, burial, and resurrection. That hour when it was time for him to give his life for us, to pay for sin. And John's going to refer to this hour 15 times in his book. I want to just show you five of them, okay? John 4. But the hour is coming. It is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. John 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. As he taught in the temple, actually that's a typo, says that no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All of a sudden you get to John chapter 12, and this is when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the third and final time, the week of his death. And all of a sudden he's changing his language. He says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And then John chapter 17, we're going to find Jesus in a garden praying the night that he's betrayed. And it says, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So Jesus is saying to Mary here, look, a countdown has begun. I'm on my father's mission that now culminates in dying for your salvation. And what's interesting is Mary does not pout. She knew this day would come. In fact, she needs this day to come. I mean, you think about it in Acts chapter one, after Jesus dies and rises from the dead, we're told that the Followers of Jesus who have seen the resurrected Christ, who have believing in him, who have received forgiveness of sins, they gather in a room and you know who's there? Acts 1.14 says, Mary, the mother of Jesus was there. Mary believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so but in trust, she's not offended. She's not pouting when he's saying these things. She just says, all right, I don't understand, but servants look, whatever he tells you to do, you do. So two points of application here on his glory to set his face to please his father. First is this, is let's worship Jesus who did set his face to save our soul. And I'm going to explain what this means. Jesus never got distracted. 
And you should be thankful that he never got distracted. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, unlike every single one of us, Jesus never excused his shortcomings by citing his good intentions. He didn't get back to heaven after failing to die and failing to rise and failing to reconcile and say, but God, I meant well. No, he set his face to honor his father, to complete the task. So if you think about just, the, just the, 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 all that had to take place in the heart of Jesus, he's in heaven, he's being worshiped, he's enjoying the unbroken fellowship that's been from eternity past with the Father and with the Spirit. And it says that Jesus set his face to take on flesh. He knew what it would cost, the humility, the condescension to take on a human body. To even start as a baby who needed someone to change his diaper. This is the son of God, the creator of the universe. And there's no record of this in the Bible, but there was literally a point in in time where the father looked at the son and the son says, it's go time. And he set his face to come to the earth. And when he got here, he set his face to resist all forms of temptation. He says that he's been tempted in every way, just as all of us, yet he was without sin. He set his face to resist lust and pride and greed. And then we're told that there came a time when he literally set his face to the city of Jerusalem. Three years from now, we're going to find that Literally, he says, guys, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. When I get to Jerusalem, the son of man is going to be arrested. He's going to be flogged and beaten. He's going to be crucified. He'll be buried, but he's going to rise from the dead. He's talking about himself. They say, no, let's not go. And he says, no, we're going. And in the text, in Luke, it actually says that Jesus Christ says he's walking in front of the disciples to Jerusalem to the cross. And you know what the disciples are doing? They're in back, maybe 10, 15 yards back, and they're arguing while they're going to the cross of who's the greatest disciple. So imagine just the irony of Jesus. He's got his face set on Jerusalem. He's aware of the sin 20 yards back that he's going to have to die for. And this Jesus kept walking. He set his face to endure the separation that he had never known from his father. When all of our sin was placed upon his shoulders and in his hands. And then he set his face to allow nails to be put through his hands and feet. He could have said no. But he didn't. And then in power, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose. You see, Jesus did all this not to give us a second chance to try to get it right. He did all this to pay the penalty, absorb the wrath, to forgive our sin and give us his righteousness so that it would be done forever. If you're a believer, he didn't die for you so that to give you a second chance to be good. He died to make you good forever. 
And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, he literally brings us into his family. Mark chapter 3, verses 32 and 35, Jesus is teaching with a bunch of people and his mom and his brothers come out. So they come up to Jesus and say, hey, look, your mom and your brothers are here. They're outside. They're seeking you. It says that Jesus looks around at all the people sitting around. And this is what he says. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, for those of us who trust Jesus Christ, he brings us into the family. And when you're in the family, you can run straight to Jesus. My boys know this. I have an office up on the fourth floor. To get to my office, you have to go through two doors. And Bev. Right? She sits there. Her door's always open. Sometimes my door's not. You know what, though? Most people, they walk in, they stop at Bev, and they say, hey, is Brian there? Can I talk to him? You know what? My boys have never asked Bev, can I walk? They just walk right in. What's up, Bev? And they just keep walking. doesn't matter if the door's shut. They open it up. They know where dad is. They also know where the chocolate's at, right? But, <laughs> but the fact is, is when, when you're family, you come right in. And this is important because we don't need to go to God through a priest or through Mary. We go through Jesus. He alone is our high priest. You see, the Catholic Church teaches from this specific text. This is the only time Mary has ever asked Jesus to do something in the whole Bible. And the very foundation of praying to Mary comes from the fact that they believe that Jesus can't resist Mary's request. That even when he doesn't want to do a miracle, when Mary pleads, Jesus moves. And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he's saying, Mary, look. I love you. You've been a great mom, but I got to set my eyes now on the will of God. And the reason I have to do that is because you need a savior and everyone else does as well. See, we can come directly to the throne. And Hebrews chapter four says that we have a great high priest who's in heaven with the father and that we can go with confidence straight into the room. And find grace and help in our time of need. So as a church family, we should be among all people. A worshiping people and this one who set his face to do what we needed. The second application for this point is brief, but it's really important. It's this. As parents, let's pray that all of our children would be given over to God's will. That their heart would be so inclined that when it comes time... If God were to say to your kids, these people don't know the gospel, I'm sending you, that we would not stand in the way. That we would pray more that our kids would be in the will of God than they'd be next to us in our neighborhood. That we would be praying, God, whatever your will is for my kids, there will come a time when they no longer will Submit to me, and I'm praying, God, that they would submit to you. And so, kids, we, we, we commend you. When God tells you to do something, we're, as a church, we're going to support you doing that. And your parents are as well. Lord willing. Number three. The third thing we see about Jesus' glory is this, is that Jesus shows his glory by abundantly providing joy and forgiveness. 
joy and forgiveness. It is pretty remarkable that Jesus tells the servants to go over there and fill up those six stone jars that are used for the Jewish rites of purification. See, in Mark chapter 7, we're told that the Pharisees had added a bunch of rules to their mealtime. At mealtime, they had some water. It was set aside. It was, and this water would, was, was, was there specifically so that people could wash their hands and wash their face and they can wash their pots and wash their cups and their utensils and everything else because to eat without washing would defile the heart and you would lose standing with God. And so these six stone jars are sitting over there and they're a visual picture of works, good works, to keep right standing with God. And Jesus... He says, I want you to fill them with water. Now, you have to understand this. To fill these things with anything water would defile them. To put wine in these jars would defile them and make them useless. But the servants do exactly what he says. They fill them to the brim. And then he says, now, I want you to take some of this to the master of the feast. That's the, the, the lead waiter. That's the one who tastes the wine to check it. Okay, this isn't too sour. Let's put it out. All of a sudden, he tastes and he goes, whoa. Because on the way, Jesus had turned all that water into wine. Now, how do you get wine? You need grapes. How do you get grapes? You need a vine. How do you get vines? You need seeds. How do you get seeds? You need more seeds and more vines, more grapes. What do you do when, when you put that vine in the ground? What do you need? Well, you need earth, dirt. You need sunlight. You need water. And what happens when all that culminates and you actually have a grape? It's not wine. No, what are you going to do? You've got to crush it. You've got to break it. And then you've got to... You have to... to, to uh, what's the word? Uh, squeeze it. Uh, press it. No, that's not the word. Have to get the juice out of the grape, right? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Strain it. That's the word. You got to strain it, right? And yet Jesus did all this. And he had no grapes and no vines and no seeds and no sunlight and no dirt and no water. And there were no squeezing, no crushing, no straining. Jesus created wine out of nothing. And because that wine did not have to pass through the fallen dirt, that dirt that had been cursed because of our sin, it was, it was like Garden of Eden kind of wine. It was perfect wine. Now, right about now, your ethical conviction on drinking may be leading you to root for me to come to your defense. Some of you are saying, man, authorized drinking right here, right now for all of us because Jesus made wine. And others of you are saying, no, wait, you please condemn it right now because drunkenness is sin. And this wine couldn't have been real wine. This was grape juice because it had no time to ferment. Let's just talk about what we know. First of all, we know it's real wine. Listen, Jesus has the power to make new things old. Adam and Eve, they didn't, they, they didn't grow up as a baby. They got there on the scene already mature. 
So don't get too upset about, well, we didn't have time to ferment into real alcoholic wine. This was grape juice. No, it wasn't grape juice. This is wine. We know that because even the master of the feast goes, whoa. He goes and rebukes the bridegroom and he says, dude, you don't get this right. All right? You start with the really good wine. And then when they kind of have the edge taken off, you can trick them and you can give them something that's not quite so, so, so valuable. You did it all wrong. So we know this was wine. We also know that God calls us to be men and women of self-control. Even for leaders within his church, deacons and elders, he says that these men are men of character. And one of the characteristics is they're not given over to much wine. But we also know that drunkenness is sin. But hear this real carefully. If the drink in this passage is what you take out of John chapter 2, you're simply looking at the wrong mountain. The application of this point is let's rejoice for the wedding is coming. And I emphasize the wedding. You see, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist is going to tell us that Jesus is the final bridegroom. And that this bridegroom has the power to provide for how every other groom's all the other grooms in the world, how they fall short. And isn't it true, grooms, we all fall short? Whether it's in our provision or whether it's in our care or whether it's with our speech, we all fall short. But this bridegroom, he's going to get everything right. See, the Bible begins with a wedding. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. And all of this culminates in the final wedding. We read about this wedding in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 19, 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Well, how is this bride made ready? It's certainly not by washing our hands in water so that we're pure, because Jesus has ruined those jars. And he tells us exactly how we're made ready. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says, Who are these clothed in white robes? These are the ones who have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, friends, good works may take some of the dirt off your hands in relationships, but they cannot take sin out of your heart. But those who trust Jesus Christ are forgiven and are given a place at the final wedding feast. A wedding feast that is marked by such abundance. I just want to show you one last passage. Way back in the Old Testament, back in Genesis, Jacob is blessing his sons, his 12 sons. And we are told there that the promised one would be coming from the tribe of what? Judah. So when he gets to Judah, this is what he says. This is a foretaste of the Messiah who would come. I want you to see it. It says, the scepter, that's what you hold when you're the king, shall not depart from Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's all the peoples. And he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. And he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, meaning grape juice, wine. Now, why? What's he saying here? Well, if you had a choice vine, how many of you would strap your donkey to it? You wouldn't, would you? You would put a wall around that thing because that's the best. Unless 
Every single vine you had was the choice, and it didn't matter how many vines would be ruined, you still have more than enough to provide for everyone forever. And this is the point. Wine is a symbol of abundance and plenty, not only in our parties, but in God's forever and ever and ever. He talks about meats and wines and why he does this and why he says this is for this reason is when we get to heaven and we enjoy that marriage supper of the land, that when we are at that wedding, what he's saying is he is going to be such a provider that literally you can strap your animals to the things that create the abundance and there'll be still so much abundance, you cannot absorb it all. And this is the picture of heaven. Perfection and abundance of forgiveness and grace and joy and thanksgiving. This is available to us. And so friends, look at Jesus. He's the glorious one in John 2. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your love for us and we're grateful for this text that reminds us of your amazing sacrifice to set your face to do what was needed to reconcile and redeem us. And I pray for those who are here who maybe don't know Christ as Savior that you would use this time even as we play some music and just contemplate. God, would you call them to yourself? God, as we take this time and even as we give of an offering, we pray, God, that you would take what you have given us and some of it is given back to you, that you would take that and use it to expand the witness of the name of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your forgiveness. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.